All 60 school districts in BC are required to post their back to school online plans at some point today. So he will be addressing that in the press conference. And on top of that, Prime Minister Trudeau announced that the province of BC will be receiving $242 million in federal funding to help reopen our schools safely. That money is a part of a $2 billion national fund to help provinces pay for COVID-19 safety measures in reopening schools, which we will be speaking to our next guest about. Aaron Woodrick, who is the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayer Federation, has an article out today in the Financial Post. The opening paragraph is this. It says, As Preston Manning used to say, the last time the federal deficit was so big, when you're in a hole, the first thing you do is stop digging. Very soon now, the Trudeau government needs to put down its very large shovel. Aaron joins us now. Thanks for being here today. Hey, thanks for having me, Nikki. Just how large is Trudeau's shovel? It's pretty sizable. I mean, the last update we got, $343 billion. That's, about, uh, that's actually as big as all the money the federal government spends every year. So if you look at it this way, if you, if you were making, for example, 3000 bucks a month, you would be spending 6000 That's what, where the government is at uh, as of today. So where can the Trudeau government start to cut costs? Because if I was spending $6,000 a month and I only had $3,000 a month in my pocket, I too would want to look at where I can start saving a little bit. Sure, and it's understandable given the situation we're in. The very reason that we've had to spend that much, uh, you know, I know the word's overused now, but we're in an unprecedented situation. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's not going to be simple. But I think I I wrote this piece really to just remind people that uh, we've been getting by where we have till this point, um, you know, because we've been borrowing. At the end of the day, we're going to have to pay that back. And the sooner we start thinking about the things um, that we might be able to do without or places we can cut back in government, government is very large, especially federally, and if we're not even thinking about ways to save a little bit of money, it's just going to make the climbing that hill a lot bigger down the road. So does this imply then that there should be jobs cut on a, on a federal level, on a government level? Well, I mean, it's not a pleasant thing to say, but the reality is that anyone who doesn't work in government, we've seen many jobs go, people have taken pay cuts, businesses have gone bankrupt. I think a lot of people who aren't in government would ask whether it's fair that government, you know, and everyone in government salary is paid by taxes from people in the private sector, um, that they are completely spared for this, spared from this, or should they maybe take some, uh, take some uh, hair, uh, haircuts as well? And we haven't seen any of that till now. So, you know, I just went to look, $51 billion a year is the cost of salaries. Um, if you start to make a dent in that, I think you could start to getting spending as a whole under control. But wouldn't cutting government jobs just leave people unemployed and then reliant on the government in another way for support? Sure. I mean, first of all, you don't necessarily need to cut jobs. You can just cut salaries. There are many people who um, are working hard, but they're, they're doing it for less right now simply because there's no, not enough money coming in. And it's a fair question whether the same shouldn't apply to government. Um, and the other, the other thing I'd point out is we do have many programs to support people that are out of work. And a lot of people have said to me, why are things like the CERB good enough for the rest of us, but not good enough for people who happen to work in government? Cutting some of those salaries is an interesting point because we saw this happen elsewhere during the COVID-19 pandemic, especially in those early days. In particular, I'm thinking of New Zealand, where the government and their prime minister, Jacinda Ardern, cut her salary by 20% for six months to help them weather that storm. But we didn't see Canadian politicians do the same, did we? 
No, and I thought it was very odd. I mean, it was, with Jacinda Ardern, she's actually a good friend of Prime Minister Trudeau. They're very much on the same page. She explicitly did this, in her own words, to show solidarity and leadership. She recognized that what people were going through, and if she's going to ask others to make sacrifices, she needs to sort of walk the walk. We saw it with her. We saw it in places like India and Japan, where members of Parliament took significant pay cuts. Uh, we didn't see it here. And I think uh, it, it would have gone a long way to show some leadership. And frankly, given what is coming next, given the inevitable challenges with spending, I think it would show a lot of good faith and demonstrate to people that politicians are actually willing to live it rather than just tell other people to sacrifice. And I think that that's such an important point here, isn't it? Because when Canadians are suffering financially, we want to know that we're not in this alone, that others, our leaders, are willing to sacrifice as well. I think so. I think it's, it, that, that shows good faith. It demonstrates that it's not just about being mean or cutting for its own sake. It's that, look, it's just unfortunate, but we need to do it. But I'm personally willing to do it along with the rest of you. Now, I was seeing in your article, you said the taxpayers would save $16 million a year if MPs and senators took a 20% pay cut. Yeah, and again, that's, uh, you know, in, in a $300 billion deficit, that's, that's maybe a drop in the bucket. But I, the symbolism, I think, is very valuable. And I think you get more buy-in from the public. And even uh, people working in government, they would say, yeah, you know what, nobody likes a pay cut. But it's better to take a small pay cut than, than lose your job entirely, like many people in the private sector have. New Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole spoke on CKNW's morning show, Mornings with Simi, earlier today. Now, Simi's on vacation, so guest host Jill Bennett asked him about a new report from the Canadian Association of Broadcasters that suggests some pretty grim news for media, particularly radio and TV stations in small markets. That new report suggests media in general, be it radio, be it newspapers and so forth, could be in serious trouble. Justin Trudeau was putting hundreds of millions of dollars more into the state broadcaster who was competing with you for advertising dollars. And I don't think that's fair, particularly in the digital age that we're in. So uh, I've said it's time to reform and modernize. And that means taking the state subsidy out of certain areas of of the media in CBC, English television, namely, and, and digital, stealing all the digital ads. I think that will help broadcasters. That will help the private media landscape. And I'm willing to work with with any sectors that have been acutely impacted uh, by COVID. My focus will be on retaining and growing jobs. um, And that's really got to be the focus uh, over the next few years for our country. That was new Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole. And this is not a new conversation by any means, is it? Something we've heard before, certainly, especially to hear a Conservative make comments about cutting funding to the CBC. We've heard that before. But... This is an idea that perhaps Trudeau may need to seriously consider if they want to address the building national debt. My guest is Aaron Woodruff, who's the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Do you think that's an idea that Trudeau will take seriously moving forward? Well, I think it has to be on the table, Nikki. I recognize that with the CBC, it can be very polarizing because most people's opinion tends to depend on whether they like the CBC or not. Uh, and, and I don't think that's really what the test should be. Um, if you don't like the CBC, that's not a reason to kill it off. If you do like it, that's also not a reason to force other people to pay for it. I think that the reality, what we need to do is look at what is the CBC doing that private media are not doing? 
They may, may still need to fill in roles in communities, for example, where there's no other option. But on the other hand, they are duplicating a lot of what private sector media does. And as Mr. O'Toole said, they are competing for, for very important ad dollars. And I think there's a strong case that if you took them out of markets where there's already robust competition with private sector media, you would be helping them at the same time you're saving taxpayers money on the other side. And what about addressing other crown corporations? Yeah, there are a lot out there which, uh, you know, are doing things, again, where there's duplication. Another good example is Canada Post. Uh, there, there are some places where they deliver where it's probably fair to say, uh, you know, a, a private sector competitor would not go or could not do it viably. But there are other places they go where we don't really need um, a government entity doing it. So I think we need to look at places like that because, boy, there's a very big hill to climb and, and every million or billion you can find is, is makes the case easier. This isn't a pleasant conversation to have, though, is it? I mean, we're talking about fundamentally changing Canadian institutions in order to save money or to get money back. But again, as you said, when we started this conversation, these truly are unprecedented times. I imagine you might suggest they might call for unprecedented solutions. I think so. And I also think in the, the things I've written about here, this is really the low-hanging fruit. I think many of the things I've talked about here are not things that most Canadians would, would really feel impact their lives. There are many, many other things. You know, there are many big spending and tunnel programs, things like reform of employment insurance or old age security. Those, I think, would be much, much more challenging things. But I think there is, there is low-hanging fruit there where you could make reductions, and I don't think the vast majority of Canadians would, would notice. Realistically speaking, though, do you think that Trudeau will address Canada Post or or CBC when it comes to areas where his government will cut funding? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, the the finance minister who has recently uh, been quit or fired, depending who you believe, um, you know, by all accounts, he was actually the fiscal hawk in that government, even though he was running large deficits himself. Uh, part of the argument was that there was a disagreement between the prime minister and him about how much to spend. He wanted less. The prime minister wanted more. Um, he's gone now. Um, so that would suggest that uh, the odds of spending are, are higher now than they were a few weeks ago. The Trudeau government has announced more funding today in an area that I think many people will see as necessary, $2 billion to provide provinces and territories with the funds they may need to reopen schools safely next month. But what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm I'm not as uh, shocked by the fact uh, that there's money coming. I think you're right. Everyone recognizes schools are uh, a priority. I have children that are elementary school age. I'm anxious about it as well. Um, But the fact that this is a federal government making the announcement, um, even though this is a provincial area, and and that that it's been made clear that the Prime Minister did not speak with the provincial governments about this first. I just thought that was a very odd thing for a Prime Minister to do, to spend money in an area of provincial jurisdiction without even consulting with the people who are responsible for for spending it. Right. I mean, $2 billion is a big chunk of change. Perhaps talk to the provinces first and find out exactly what their needs are. Sure, and I know the provinces have all said they'll happily take the money. Absolutely, yeah. Um, but but uh, to do it in this way and at this time, um, you know, I, I try not to be cynical about politicians. I try and take them at their word. But to, to do it now rather than a month or two months ago, um, you know, with talk of a throne speech and a potential election, I think it may feed into the narrative that it's less about, uh, you know, doing the right thing and more about burnishing his image at a time when he's looking for political support. Now, as we continue looking at areas where the government could perhaps uh, save a little bit of money, is there any other areas that we haven't identified yet in this conversation that you think is worth noting? 
Well, a big one, and that's this has been a long-standing issue for our organization, is what we call corporate welfare. You know, we are big fans of the free market. We believe businesses that make money should be able to keep more of the money they earn. But we oppose uh, using taxpayer money to go to big businesses that can't survive on their own. And I worry that this government is gearing up to basically spray money around at a lot of businesses. Uh, I think it may be better served if you directed it to smaller businesses in our communities uh, and, and even giving them, for example, tax relief. I know many small businesses that have been hammered by the shutdown could certainly go a year or two where they would get a tax holiday in, in order to help get themselves back on their feet. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting thing to note as well is that you know, by no means is anyone saying that government funding should stop overnight. The pandemic certainly hasn't stopped and doesn't seem as though it will be anytime soon. And thus the need for continued support from the government and thus continued spending is going to continue. It is, but they have to recalibrate as they go. And that's why with things like the CERB program, it made sense in March. You know, you had to pay the bills. You had to make sure people could pay their mortgage and get groceries. It has a very different impact when you want everyone to stay home than later in the summer when you're trying to get people back to work. So I think as we move along, the government needs to keep refining its, its, uh, its help so that it gets to the people who still need it while encouraging the people who are able to go back to work to, to do so. Mm-hmm. And it'll be interesting to see what happens if, uh, and, you know, hopefully there isn't, but if we do see a, a phase two of the pandemic, don't, a second wave, as they it. say. <laughs> I know, I know, right? I knock on wood as I say it because, you know, nobody wants to see it. And especially if we're talking about life from an economic standpoint, certainly do not want to see that second wave. It is. It's going to be a challenge going forward. But, uh, you know, they say we're all in this together and Canada is doing relatively well. So hopefully we carry on on that path. Did you know that today is also International Dog Day? I myself am a dog owner. I have two dogs, one an elderly golden retriever, uh, the other uh, three years old or so. He's a Jack Russell Beagle Corgi mix. I'm not too sure what he is. I'm in love with my dogs, maybe perhaps a little bit too obsessively, some might say. <laughs> However, I, I was so disappointed. I was so saddened to hear that awful story yesterday of a dog that was mauled at a Coquitlam off-leash park on Monday night. I take my dogs to off-leash parks all the time. This was the story of little 10-year-old Romeo. He had to undergo surgery. He currently can't even walk after he was attacked by five vicious dogs. Romeo's poor owner was screaming and she was kicking at the other dogs, trying to get them off her dog. And what did the owner of the five dogs do while this was all happening? Apparently, he just stood there and said, oh, come on, they're just playing. Of course, they weren't just playing. And then as he walked away with his five dogs, he turned back around and flipped off. Yeah, he gave the owner of Romeo the bird as he walked away after his dogs had attacked hers. It's a really, really sad story. We're now hearing that 36-year-old man. He's been identified and he's been charged with bylaw infractions, and that includes five counts of having an animal at large. Joining us to talk more about this story is CKNW contributor John Jang. Hey, good afternoon, Nikki. Happy International Dog Day. Wish we had a more positive story to talk about here today. But yeah, I think you did a great job detailing the story. Obviously, very disheartening to see a dog owner would just let five of his dogs go and attack another dog and then just shrug it off as if he really thought they were playing. About this, I talked with Victoria Schroff. Uh, She's an animal law lawyer and a UBC animal law professor. And she said, clearly, this is an example of a bad dog owner. Right. I mean, if, if you love animals, you love other people's animals as well. And to see somebody in distress, I mean, just generally is 
I mean, in this, apparently there was blood everywhere. So I think to fall on an argument um, such as a defense of the dogs were only playing, it, it doesn't really, it doesn't really make sense when there was that volume of blood and um and this woman is screaming it's it's not uh it, it isn't it isn't a sort of situation where one dog is playing and and um you know it was one to one i mean five on one first of all the numbers don't work and uh the size of the dogs i understand that romeo's a pomeranian so he's pretty much your small breed and the other dogs were probably um medium at least uh, or medium small And this must come down to not just the dogs needing to be trained, but obviously this owner needs some training as well. Yeah, absolutely, Nikki. It's something that uh, Victoria mentioned that dog owners, well, anyone can become a dog owner, but specifically, you need to make sure that the people that are going to be handling these pets and making sure that they grow up responsibly, yeah, they need some training as well. Absolutely. No, this is is a position that I, I believe in that we really need to educate both sides of the leash so that means the owner guardian and the dog it's not a question of i have a well-trained dog it's like are you well trained but in this case it just seems to me that it was incivility at at the very best it's incivility um going along the spectrum of some sort of negligence and there's there's just a stark failure here to take the situation seriously and compassionately and that to me is very disturbing. Um, I understand that uh, from the video. The reason why I can say this is because I see that this man is is giving this lady the finger and walking away with his dogs. Um, so it's 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 disappointing to see this kind of behavior. I would just not expect that somebody would be able to think that this is a situation to walk away from. Now, John, I know what I think should happen to this owner, and I think it should certainly be more than just being charged with bylaw violations that equal, what, 150 bucks a piece. However, did Victoria say what she thinks should happen to these dogs? Yeah, absolutely, because we've seen incidences where if dogs are too violent, too aggressive, and if investigators determine that they're just too much of a nuisance, then unfortunately, in the worst case scenario, these dogs can often be put down. And that's awful news for everyone. It really does seem in this scenario, Nikki, the dogs are the biggest losers. So this is what Victoria had to say and hoping that the dogs could be saved. I certainly hope we're not at that situation with with the five off-leash dogs. I I really believe that um, euthanizing and putting dogs down should be the absolute last, last resort. Um, I really believe there's usually interventions that can happen along the way, behavior modifications. Uh, A visit to the vet should be the first thing to rule out any type of aggression that's been mediated by an illness, um, things like that. Um, So I think yeah, that that is unfortunate. If if you know that that could be one of the outcomes, that would be really unfortunate um, because I don't believe that uh, that killing is the answer. Um, we've seen situations in other countries where um, people. I'm not going to say about this case specifically, but if, for example, somebody has a dog who has um, done something horrible, like killed another dog or or harmed a person, they just go out and get another dog if their dog is put down. So the problem doesn't end there either. Um, You know, it's, it's a situation where it just, it can escalate very quickly. And if people take responsibility, as soon as they see that their dog is doing an unprovoked attack, this could have been something that was just simply handled by, by the people involved. um, If it had been done amiably 
Um, but unfortunately, that's not the case here. And do we think that there could be the potential at least for more circumstances like this? And I certainly hope not, because like I said, I take my dogs to off-leash parks, but Mm -hmm. there's more people adopting dogs through the COVID-19 pandemic. And so many of them have the best intentions. They want a friend to get them through these troubling times. And those dogs certainly need homes, but you also may have people who are inexperienced with dogs now adopting them as well. Absolutely. I mean, you're abs- you make a great point. We know those numbers are rising here through the pandemic. It's a fact. So Victoria shared her concern with seeing a lot of these rising adoption rates. I think that's a really important consideration. And um, I've been concerned about the um, adoptions that have been taking place, too, when people are just adopting a convenient COVID buddy. Uh, during COVID, they're likely to probably be those same people who dump dogs or cats or whatever animal they've adopted back at a shelter once they're called back into work. Um, and I think if we had something where we tied in our licensing of dogs with some training, I think that would be a very, very good approach. And we probably see a reduction in bites. This is something that I write about uh, when I talk about how we can kind of fix, uh, you know, the number of dog bites we see. They go up precipitously in warmer weather even before covid i noticed that at my vancouver animal law firm every spring we get more and more inquiries every year um, because people are out socializing with their dogs in good weather but what the problem is is that they need to be socialized as well yeah again a very very good reminder did victoria have any other pieces of advice Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned uh, right off the top that this occurred at an off-leash park, and those have been known to uh, be grounds for a lot of these attacks. So I asked her her thoughts on when and where dogs should be off-leash. I I really think you've got to follow the bylaws. I mean, there is a reason for that. Um, You know, if you're in a place uh, and a space where you're supposed to be having your dog on a leash, for heaven's sakes, leash your dog. I mean, there's a reason for it. There's also um, a bit of an angle here with um, little dogs and big dogs, although I don't think these dogs were big that were involved in the attack. I think, generally speaking, um, having off-leash areas for smaller dogs, as um, some uh, a woman has uh, contemplated after her dog was killed in, in an off-leash park by a bigger dog, I support that idea of having separate play areas within the off-leash areas because sometimes, a big dog can just literally, and it's true, be playing, and they don't realize their strength and harm a younger dog, a smaller dog. Um, and, you know, that can happen. I've been involved in those cases, too, where it actually is playing. But when, it's, when the woman who is holding the dog is screaming and there's blood everywhere and she's got a dog now who cannot walk, clearly she was, she was looking at the situation correctly. This was not play. This was something that was going to possibly end the life of her dog. Um, and it sounds like nearly did. John, thank you so much for sharing your conversation with Victoria. You got it. Again, sorry, it's not the, the most happiest news on International Dog Day, but an important one. Well, I thought that maybe we could end on a positive note, a less troubling note. Can you guess, since it is International Dog Day, what the most popular dog here in is, and I say most popular by the dog breed that was Google searched the most through this this past pandemic. Ooh, I used to have a Maltese, so I'm gonna I'm gonna guess Maltese. You are 
100% incorrect. It is not a Nazi. <laughs> no.、Uh, German Shepherd was the number one most searched breed online、okay. in British Columbia. They're smart dogs. I can see that. They have a ton of personality and、uh, they're, they're awfully cute. So, I, you know what? I, I, okay, I get that. I get that.、Uh, Golden Retriever was number three. Kane Corso was number four. The Mexican Hairless was number five. I'm not sure if that's a dog breed or if that's something else that they just got confused <laughs> in the search.、Uh, number two was the Boykin Spaniel, which I've never even heard of before. I, I mean,、okay. I know what a Spaniel is, but、uh, I'm not sure what the Boykin Spaniel is. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. That's a new one to me, but maybe I just got to go do some more Googling. Well, yeah, I guess hence why we have to Google it and perhaps bump it up <laughs> in the rankings. John, thank you very much. Thanks, Nikki. That was CKNW contributor John Jang. All right, we're going to wrap up the show. Coming up next, you are listening to The Jill Bennett Show. I'm your host, Nikki Reitmeyer on 980 CKNW. My mother's in a,、uh, my grandmother rather, is in a care home in Surrey. And we actually had a bit of a fright a, a couple weeks ago. She's okay. But I'm thinking you might have experienced something similar over the last few months. Now is a really rough time to have a parent or a grandparent in a care home when you're not able to rush to their side to be there when. You need to be around your family members when you want to see that individual. Unfortunately, it's a common story that we've heard of time and time again since the pandemic began and since there w a s limitations put on visitors in long term care facilities. Now, the reason why there has been a limitation on visitor access to care homes, it's obvious. Of course, we don't want outbreaks in those facilities, period. But those limitations on access, they're still heartbreaking for families who so desperately want to see their elderly loved ones and vice versa. The elderly, too, who would love to see their kids and their grandkids and their great grandkids. I think of stories where there have been great grandchildren born during the pandemic and that. Great grandparent who's in a long term care home hasn't yet been able to see that new face in their family. Well, a province wide survey has been released today. It's being launched in order to get an idea as to the impacts of visitor restrictions at long term care facilities. And joining me to discuss it more is Mike Klassen, acting CEO of the BC Care Providers. Hi, Mike. Good afternoon, Nikki. Now, Mike, first of all, I should ask you about the news related to BC Care Providers Association. Today, you announced a new CEO. That's right.、Uh, beginning on September 8th, it was right after Labor Day, our new CEO is going to be、uh, Terry Lake, who a lot of people will know.、Uh, was the former Minister of Health,、uh, who served as Minister of Health between 2013 and 2017.、Uh, he's a Kamloops native, a great guy, lots of experience in both the public and private sector, and、uh, somebody who's very passionate about the issues that, that our organization is around seniors and, and,、uh, and their health. And、uh, we're excited. To have him come on board. You've been holding the reins through a pretty tough time. Yeah, it's, a, it's been a little bit like as described to me as grabbing a helm in a hurricane on a, on a boat、uh, riding those choppy seas. It has been probably one of the most, if not the most, challenging time for our sector. And,、uh, but I, our team, I think, has done an extraordinary job of, of just trying to respond to the challenges that are being thrown at us. Let's talk a bit about this province wide survey. It's my understanding its intention is to give residents of long term care facilities and their family members an opportunity to share some of their experiences and to talk about the difficulties that they've been facing. What are some of those experiences that you've been hearing about? 
I'll just start by saying this is probably the most vexing issue um, that I think we've faced as a sector, and it's certainly been the most challenging one that I've encountered in my time working at uh, VC Care Providers for the well, last certainly. four years. I mean, did you ever think that there was a time in your career where you'd have to say to people, I'm sorry, but you can't visit your loved ones? Of course not. And the fact that, that we have a situation like we do now in, in hearing the heartbreaking stories that I've been hearing for months, uh, family members, uh, couples that have been married 50, 60 years that are unable to see each other uh, as they used to, not able to hold each other's hand, uh, no longer able to embrace. All of these things, we've been, we've been hearing about this and, and and the fact that family members have had to endure this has been has been very tough. I, I we really do have a great deal of empathy for for everybody and the, the residents and and the family members uh, over these last several months. And how has it been for people who work in these long term care homes? It must be certainly tough on them as well. Without question, uh, and I think we sometimes go about our day and we forget how hard and how and just what a struggle it has been for the care home operators um, who have been doing everything in their power, even with all the unknowns around COVID-19, to be able to, to try and defend against this pernicious virus that once it gets inside your doors is, is so incredibly hard to, to stop in its tracks. So they deserve a huge amount of credit for not only dealing with all the additional requirements for uh, cleaning facilities, and, and uh, donning P- a PPE constantly and just having to really change all of their behaviors and and uh, keep their, their own personal social bubbles as small as possible. And then, um, you know, and then to have on top of that family members who are under distress. And, of course, family members play an important part of the, of the care team because they're, they're often helping with meals. They're helping with um, sometimes with changing or toileting or or things that you know that that um, uh, when they get in there are, are are just the kind of support that residents are needing and, and now they don't have from a family member and so that's very difficult as well absolutely I think of my own family and uh, I'm so grateful for the the workers who are at the care home where where my grandmother is and you know but my parents do go and they they help with laundry for example they do a bit of laundry and they'll bring it back to my grandmother uh, of course, and you know we have, uh, you know this the survey that we're that you uh, and I are talking about today is an interesting one. There are there are some questions there that um, I I only am a little concerned that it might um, create some some. Uh, some expectations that might not be able to be met by some operators. For example, whether you've had the opportunity to to uh, hug somebody or hold their hand, those are things that are technically, uh, by the rules set out by, uh, by Dr. Bonnie Henry, not allowed. Um, there have been some places that have bent the rules, if you'd like, um, because they um, be, because they really have tried to figure out a way um, to to uh, make that ethical dilemma less difficult and and something that they face every day. And so they, you know, their their goal really is the the least amount of harm. And, and that's a really difficult thing to be to be having to weigh every day. Um, but when you don't have enough staff and you don't have enough resources to make sure that these visits can happen safely for residents, family members, and uh, care providers themselves, then you have to make the decision to to limit that kind of um, that kind of connection. 
What other questions are being asked in this survey? Um, well, there are uh, just I think questions about uh, about the use. Of, I mean, it's interesting. It's a thirty. It's the, the time requirement is about thirty minutes, uh, and so I know that there are going to be some family members that are going to be happy to take that time. I think residents themselves, it might be a little bit more of a struggle. Um, there are questions asking about. Um, whether they've seen a change in um, in the health, either the cognitive um, health or or the physical health over time, compared to the where where they are before. Again, that kind of testing is done on, on a quarterly basis. Uh, there's something called the MD, MDS nursing assessment. So there already is a formal process for monitoring how people uh, how their health is in inside the care home. Um, so it's a it's it's more difficult for a family member who perhaps hasn't seen somebody for a period of time to be able to make that kind of judgment call. And of course, the thing about aging is, you know, when you're in your 90s, for example, you know, in a few months can make a very big difference in somebody's um, uh, health. It, it, it can it can start to fall very quickly, and it's not just because of COVID, but it might have happened in a similar way before we had these restrictions. Mm-hmm. Now, at the end of June, it was announced that the one designated visitor uh, rule would come into place, basically allowing a one designated visitor into long-term care homes. From what you've heard nearly two months on now, how has that been received? Well, of course, it was um, it was BC Care providers who um, did um, ask Bonnie Henry in, in earlier that month of June um, to to we had a three point plan that we put forward that would um, ask the government to put some resources in place so we could have safe visitation start to happen. And of course, on June 30th, the announcement came out, essentially mirroring those those recommendations. So we were very happy that that happened. The 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 amount of money that the the Minister of Health Adrian Dix announced was $160 million to um, to be applied towards hiring additional staff to to manage and, and monitor uh, these visits. That money is starting to roll out now. Um, I think quite a few operators got started on this and with um, did a great job. Uh, there's a there's a campus of care out in in Surrey called Elam Village. They actually decided to bring in a food truck and and really made it into a fantastic uh, event for people to come into the care homes and they built these beautiful sort of visiting areas for others it's been it's been more difficult this is the time of year when a lot of staff who have been knocking themselves silly since um, since the pandemic was declared back in March are finally getting a little bit of vacation time because, well, it's that time of year when people are trying to take a break. So that is leading to um, places not having enough staff sometimes to manage these visits. So I think you're probably seeing, a, uh, in, in, in some places, you're seeing things going um, quite well. and others, I think they're still struggling to kind of keep up. And if you have a, a, a care home, um, that has, you know, 100 or 150 uh, residents, then you're going to have 150 families who are going to want to come in and do those visits. So, sort of scheduling that into a week uh, between meals and, and times when they're unavailable, uh, it's, been a, it's been a lot of work. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, my pleasure. Anytime. Thanks, Nikki. Many parents and teachers, even students, still have many concerns around the return to school starting early next month. September 10th, I think, is the day that the kids are supposed to go back. A little different than the September 8th start that we normally see. 
Now, those concerns relate to, in many cases, the use of masks in schools or the use of face shields. Well, a Canadian PPE manufacturer is relieving some of those concerns by sending 54,000 face shields to BC teachers as an act of goodwill, an act of good faith, an act of charity. Let's speak now to Jeremy Hedges, who is the president of the company Canadian Shield. Jeremy, thanks so much for speaking to us today. Hey, happy to be on. Can you tell me a bit about your company, first of all? How have you guys adapted during the pandemic? Sure. So um, we started as an, an ed tech company. We worked with school boards across Canada to bring technology into the classroom, 3D printers, robotics kits, laser cutters. And uh, when the pandemic hit, we had laser cutters on hand and, and started making face shields for frontline healthcare workers. And um, since then, our, our team has grown from 10 to about 310 people. We've delivered uh, 13.5 million shields, and, and now we're, you know, onshoring surgical mask production for Canada, so making hundreds of thousands of surgical masks a day out of our Ontario factory. Well, wow, so you guys are a company who have actually been in a fortunate position where you've been able to hire during the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, and you know what, that's, that's been, I think, really, uh, really good for our community and, and Nice to be able to do that for people. We we pay a living wage, so it's eighteen bucks an hour here, and we provide meals and and have a benefits program. So we've we've created good good paying jobs right here in Ontario for manufacturing. And fortunately for us, you guys are now going to be sending fifty four thousand face shields to British Columbia's Ministry of Education for teachers to use when they head back to the classrooms next next month. What inspired you to want to do that, to want to send these face shields, not to just BC teachers, but to teachers all across the country for use? Yeah, so when when the pandemic hit and, and we started this this whole endeavor, we really didn't think that we were, um, you know, starting a business. It was it was a local doctor came to our office, said that they were short 10,000 face shields. And we made a call to the community to help with our donation efforts so that we could move fast. And, and school boards from not just Ontario, but across the country, uh, use their 3D printers to support that effort. So they would 3D print the headband, ship it to our office. We would clean it, sanitize it, um, attach it to a shield, and then ship it out to the front line. So with with teachers and school board support, we were able to donate um, tens of thousands of shields in that like first few critical weeks of, of the pandemic while we were scaling up our technology to uh, you know, go from tens of thousands to millions. So this was our way of, of paying it forward. We're, we're donating one shield for every teacher in BC and, and one for every teacher in the country. That's fantastic. And I'm sure the face shields will most certainly be welcomed, especially as the shipment comes at a time when there is quite a bit of debate about whether or not face shields or masks should be mandatory in schools. Yeah, and I I know that uh, we're a couple of weeks out from, from reopening, so I just I wish all those teachers well and... Um, you know, hope, hope that's one, one added layer of, of comfort. Yeah. For a BC teacher who may be receiving one of your face shields, what do they need to know? For example, how often can the face shield be reused? How many times can they use it? Yeah, so we, uh, our shields are, um, are reusable dozens of times. I mean, I've had mine. Uh, I made it three and a half months ago, and I, I wear it every day. So... Um, they're, they're easy to clean. You can just use soap and water or any like alcohol based sanitizer. They're easy to put on. Um, you do wear it with a mask. So you either wear it with a cloth mask or a surgical mask. So this is more of, um, an eye protection piece than it is. Um, it's not a respirator. It's, it's not a mask. It's a shield. 
Right. This is something that people may have seen a server in a restaurant wear, that full, clear plastic face shield. Yeah, exactly. And it's my understanding, too, that your face shields are made with 100% recyclable material, correct? Yeah, so we make it with uh, recycled PET that's uh, made in Montreal. So they ship it here, and, and then we stamp it into the shape of the shield. And then it goes through our production line where it's you know counted, inspected, and, and packed and shipped out. Well, hey, Jeremy, thank you so much for sending these face shields to Canadian teachers, and thanks for chatting with me today. Hey, Nikki, thanks so much. is what the intersection of Scott Road and 72nd sounded like last night. That intersection, right on the Surrey-Delta border, has become ground zero for hockey fans celebrating the Canucks' playoff run. And last night, they certainly had a lot to celebrate. The Vancouver Canucks came back from a brutal loss on Sunday night to beat the Las Vegas Golden Knights 5-2. What a game. It was aggressive. It was fast. I was on the edge of my sofa for most of that game, but I was delighted to see them win 5-2. However, on my sofa is where I remained. I did not drive to the intersection of Scott and 72nd to take part in that celebration because, of course, the fact that fans are happy that the Canucks have won is not the issue here. The fact that people are gathering by the hundreds during a time when physical distancing is so important is really what the main concern is. A couple days ago, Surrey RCMP spokesperson Joni Sadu spoke on this program about how fans were being warned that if you keep going to that intersection, or frankly any intersection, and gathering in large numbers, you might end up getting a ticket for violating the new COVID-19 rules. Well, Joni Sadu, spokesperson for the Surrey RCMP, is back again. Joni, thanks for joining us. Hi, Nikki. Thank you very much for having me. Now, on Friday night, there was about a thousand people who gathered at the intersection of Scott and 72nd. We could hear from the noise and the cheering. There were people who were gathering there again last night. But how many? What was the scene like there last night? That's right. So on Friday night, there was um, upwards of a thousand people that had gathered um, to celebrate the win of the Canucks. Um, and they'd gathered at Scott Road in 72nd. So last night after their win, we did expect there to be another crowd. Um, however, uh, we were hopeful that they would have got the message and uh, perhaps found a more safer way to celebrate. Um, so we were pleased to see that the crowd was less than half of what we saw on Friday. So there were approximately 400 to 450 uh, pedestrians, uh, pedestrians and vehicles. Um, and we did see that people were um, distancing more than they were previously, and more people seemed to be wearing masks. So this is good. However, um, it, it does show that some people just aren't getting the message. Yeah, it sounds like for, for a few, they're understanding, okay, at least I need to be social distancing or physical distancing. But for others, like you said, obviously still not getting this message. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, like you said, Nikki, um, you celebrated, uh, we all celebrated. I'm, I myself am a Canucks fan and, and you did so from your couch at home. And that's what we're hoping for, that people will see that, you know, getting together in these large gatherings, it is putting 
Uh, not only are they putting themselves at risk and the other people there, but they're putting all of their um, their loved ones at risk, everybody else in their household and the other individuals that they have contact with. Is there any concern that because last night's game was on a Tuesday that maybe you wouldn't get as many people going out to celebrate? Now, the next game is going to be tomorrow at 6.45 p.m., uh, and then they'll be playing Saturday night. Now, that, I imagine, could be a cause for concern. That certainly was uh, something that we considered, that uh, perhaps the crowd was less because it was a Tuesday night as opposed to a Friday night, um, of course. And so, you know, regardless of that, we're, we're going to continue to be out there at that intersection, um, monitoring the crowds and making sure that we um, also are spreading the message to let everybody know, let the public know that, you know, people need to stay indoors and not get together in these um, large gatherings to celebrate, stay inside and get, and uh, celebrate in a safe manner, celebrate uh, virtually, but yeah, don't go out to this intersection to participate in this large crowd. On Friday, RCMP handed out tickets to drivers because passengers in their vehicles were hanging out of windows or hanging out of sunroofs. Were there any more tickets that were handed out last night? Um, yes, so there were five violation traffic violation tickets that were handed out last night. And, of course, in these situations, uh, public safety is our number one concern. So we are looking at um, the safety of the pedestrians and vehicles in the area. So more traffic violation tickets handed out, but there was no tickets handed out for violating any physical distancing or COVID-19 rules. No, there weren't any tickets um, handed out that were COVID-related. However, there were um, a number of warnings issued and the crowds were dispersed. And um, it was the observations of the officers that the individuals that did attend did appear to be spacing out more than previously. Um, and then more people were also wearing masks. However, we still, regardless of this, and anytime there's a mass gathering, it is difficult still to keep that social distancing. So it's best to just stay at home and celebrate in a safe manner rather than getting together to participate in this type of event. Yeah, yesterday I was watching it on the news and I could see the the flashing sirens from the police and I saw that you guys were there at the intersection. And I also saw this, this guy doing an interview with the media and he had a face mask on, but then he was taking it off so that he could speak to the camera. And I thought, no, 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 this is keep the mask on. You're wearing the mask for a reason. Is that the kind of stuff that would land somebody a ticket outside of just, you know, being together in a group and not physically distancing? Is it also not wearing a mask? That kind of stuff that could end up getting someone a ticket. You know, what our officers are looking at is um, any type of dangerous behavior. And, and that's a really good example that you gave, Nikki, because when, you know, people go into these situations, they want to celebrate. They have good intentions. They, they're they not there with the intention of making anybody sick and, you know, but they don't realize how dangerous their behavior is. And oftentimes when you do get into these large gatherings and you're surrounded in that type of an atmosphere, you know, things get out of hand. People forget about the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic here and they forget about you know the social distancing and having to wear masks because their natural instinct is well I want to remove this because it's a barrier between me and you know being able to communicate my message and celebrate so you know those are things that people need to consider so we just ask that before you make the decision to um, step out and, and go and celebrate in these large crowds, reconsider that and think, you know, what's the safest way for me to show my support and celebrate? Joni, thank you so much for chatting with us today. Of course. Thanks, Nikki.
Well, yesterday we heard the shocking figures. 175 people had died from drug overdoses last month, a near record high. How to tackle this problem is a conversation that, of course, we're continuing today on CKNW. And earlier, Mike Smith, during his show, got a phone call from a listener named Kelly. Listen to this. I'm a recovering addict. I used heroin for 43 years. I mean, there was a lot of people, a lot of people that put their hand out to me, tried to help, got me into recovery centers, got me into detoxes, got me anywhere and everywhere they wanted to put me. Nothing, and I repeat, nothing helped until I decided I wanted the help. When I decided I wanted to stop, my life had gotten to the point where I ended up in drug court. I was looking at seven years in jail. And at the age of 59, it wasn't, I didn't look, I wasn't looking forward to it. And my lawyer turned me on to something called drug court, which is also a recovery, a drug and alcohol recovery system. Okay. You learn everything about yourself, but you want, you have to got to want to stop. You have to want to get yourself back into life itself. As you heard CKNW listener Kelly say, It's not just a matter of the services being available. It's a matter of getting people into a position where they are ready to receive that help, where like him, they want to receive that help. Now, interestingly enough, today is also the day known as Welfare Wednesday. Will we see another spike in overdoses today? To address this matter further, joining us is Nirmala Renega. She's the founder of Chopra Addiction and Wellness Center. Hi, Nirmala. How are you doing? I'm good, Nikki. How are you? I'm good, Nirmala. Thank you. Yesterday, when you heard those figures, 175 people had died in this province from drug overdoses. How did that make you feel? Well, I had to take some deep breaths, right? Because we have been seeing the the numbers for the last, um, you know, since May, June, July, the numbers just, you know, over 70 people. That's a lot of people dying uh, in a month. Um, you know, with, when we look at this, it's like five people we losing to overdose. That's not acceptable. It's just not acceptable. We can do more and we should be able to do more. Uh-huh. When it comes to doing more, what do you think it is that the province needs to be doing in order to get these numbers down? Well, I, you know, the the biggest thing has been is with COVID-19, um, the isolation has forced people to go into spaces. And, and when you already addiction is about isolation, I think I've talked about this before, but we need connection. And how do we create that connection so that people can get help? I, you know, I spoke to all my clinics this morning just to get an, uh, a feel for where things are uh, with people. There's more people who want to um, come out and talk to a counselor. They want resources. They want support. But a lot of places are still not fully open. And uh, while I know the government is doing what they can, but this has been sort of a systematic problem right from the beginning, the addiction part of things. Because, you know, when you look at COVID-19 and how it came up, how it's been managed, 
opioid crisis has never been managed that way. It hasn't been managed that way. There's, there's things that come out in pockets, but never, like if you look at it, there's gaps in, and there's always has been gap in mental health and addiction. Mm-hmm. You know, just never really recognize that people, these are really serious problems human beings face is when they, are, when they get into addiction and addiction needs help, support, and and uh, not just from on one level, on multiple levels. And how do we connect all those dots so that people don't fall, um, uh, you know, between the cracks? How do we get them from point A to B? And with 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 when you look at current issue, um, you know, if if they's focused on just a very specific area, um, you know, do we really know if everybody has cell phone? Can do we really know people can make a call? Do we know people have computers to access resources? We are just assuming some of these things. So I think there has to be a little bit more um, edu- education awareness, but but more. Uh, a sort of a system in place that when somebody wants a service, there should not be a gap. And and how do we do that? Do we create more outreach groups that go out and knock on people's doors? I don't know if that's the answer. But it's not just one thing, um, you know, Nikki, when we think about it, there's a multiple level of um, issue here. We have, we when when we think about just um, the isolation, the lack of uh, resources, um, the you know the, when you look at the the organization, the VCH Fraser Health. I mean, they are doing what they can, but at the end of the day, are are those services easily accessible to people? I think that's where the issue is, the access. But beyond that is something we call shame that people really don't talk about. Mm-hmm. The shame, which is the hidden emotion of human beings. And we all know what shame can feel like, right? When we, for example, I was talking to one of our counselors this morning and she mentioned that, you know, more and more people are now coming to the the, the office and really talking about uh, how, belt, how, how they felt because they had relapsed. And shame is the thing that will prevent people to seek help. So even if somebody, for example, has been doing okay, not drinking, not doing drugs, and with this COVID-19 pandemic, which has forced people um, to to be a certain way, because as you know, human beings' nature is to be social, to be connected. But now we are forced to behave a certain way. We can't give people a hug. We need to maintain distance. All this has really separated us. And so when people go into isolation, they have time. Uh, what do they do with the time? So the old stories of the past comes back. And how do you cope with that? Mm-hmm. You It reinforces the choice of going back and using because that's what helped me in the past. There was a caller earlier today on this radio station who I heard, and this is a fellow who had mm-hmm. called in and said that he himself was was a drug addict and he struggled for years with his addiction problems. But he said he had to be ready to change. He knew that there were services That's available, right. but he had to be ready to change before he was able to change. How do you get a person ready to change? I think we need to, Nikki, talk about, start talking to people right up front. 
you know, it's about creating that awareness. Um, you know, when we're giving out all these uh, harm reduction services to those who are accessing harm reduction services, is having conversation with them that, you know, there's something beyond this harm reduction, there's recovery, there's resources that you can get a better uh, life um, that is of, uh, of, of worth. Because most people don't feel that they are good enough to get there. Nirmala, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today on this. Yes, and the other thing, Nikki, just one more last point. Next week is Recovery Capital Conference, which is a big event. It's a virtual event. Right. And, you know, we'll have lots of resources there. I will be there on Zoom, and people can ask questions. Great. Thank you so much, Nirmala. Take care, Nikki. Bye-bye.